For the past three weeks, we have been considering the implications of Psalm 1611. I hope by now Psalm 1611 is literally being burned into your soul. Um, I, hope you can, I hope you can quote it by memory. But even if you can't, because it's very short, but even if you can't, that the idea of Psalm 1611 is literally being burned into your soul. So it changes at least all of 2016 for you. And I believe it changes 2016 and it will change your life. Psalm 1611 says this, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. And we've been trying to, to consider how 2016 can be a year of presence, a year in the presence of God for each of us, how we can live in the real and life-altering presence of God in our everyday lives, and I mean it by our everyday lives, and as a result, experience true joy and experience true pleasure. Because God wants us to experience joy. He wants us to experience pleasure. And so today... I want to look at just one more thing pertaining to this unpacking of Psalm 1611, pertaining to this idea of living a life of true joy and true pleasure in the presence of God. And it's this, and I referenced it earlier, and I referenced it two weeks ago, and it's, it's this. It's staying connected or being aware of God's presence, because in his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. So in his presence we get what we want. So I want to talk today about staying aware and connected to his presence in the hard times of life. Anybody ever have a hard time? Some of you are honest. All of us sometimes, some of you are too young to say, no, I really haven't yet. You will. Um, And I don't mean that to be mean. I think we all understand that life gets hard at times, that hurt and pain are real. Hard times, this is what I found, hard times affect our relationships with God. Now, I'd like to say that hard times always draw me nearer to God. Things get tough and I draw close to God and we have this incredible relationship and experience that I've never had before, but in my experience I've come to realize that oftentimes exactly the opposite happens in my life and I've witnessed it in the lives of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of other people as I've pastored over the years. That hard times don't necessarily draw people to God. Oftentimes they drive people away from God. And as a result, we can drift from that posture in life that we've been talking about over the last three weeks. That posture in life of being aware of the nearness of God, which then results in true joy and true pleasure. And as, I, and as a result of drifting away, that gift that God has, that gift of joy and pleasure can just kind of slip away from us. And we say this Christian life just isn't all that great, right? Think about it. Everyday life. You get in a fight with your spouse. Conflict over, you know, maybe, maybe finances are tight. You get, in, you get in an argument over how do we pay this and when do we pay that and there's more months than money. And that situation diverts your attention away from a connected relationship with Jesus and you begin to now, you're focusing your most of or all of your attention even on the problem. You're focusing your, your attention on the pain and the hurt. In other words, harsh words were maybe said. You focus your attention on a solution to fix the problem. 
Maybe you're focusing your attention on blaming the other person. Because, you know, we wouldn't be in this if you wouldn't have done that. And in the turmoil, somehow, this is what I find we do, we push Jesus out of the picture. Or at least we do this. We push Jesus just enough to the side that he's not really a factor in our lives anymore. We move, this is what happens. We move from living in an awareness of the ever-present King of Kings to simply living. Do you understand what I mean? We move from living in an awareness of the presence of Jesus by the Holy Spirit in our lives to simply living. That's the reality of hard times so often. It doesn't have to be. I hope by the end of this time we're going to find out how it, how it never has to be. But that's what happens. And it's real for all of us because this is what I know. That God knows we will all face problems. That you, some people have this phony, not Christian, although it's packaged as Christianity, belief that if you just serve Jesus, everything good happens all the time. And that's just not what the Bible teaches and it's not what life reveals. You know, God knows that, that we have problems. Right? I'm trying to figure out where I just wrote my note, the verse. <laughs> God knows that we're going to face problems and this is what he says in Scripture. In this world... Does it say this? In this world you will have nothing but good days. No? In this world you will have what? Trouble. John 16. You know how you highlight verses in your Bible? Do any of you have John 16.33 highlighted in your Bible? I bet you nobody does. In this world you will have... You're all checking. Does anybody have it highlighted? You do. All right, I was going to say, that's the one of those kinds you don't normally highlight. In this world, Suzanne has it highlighted, you will have trouble. And I also know this. It's God's plan for us to overcome those troubles and stay connected and stay close to him. You see, this is what I found. He is the answer in trouble. Not that he will give you the answer. He is the answer. He is the one who claims that the rather who calms the storm. He is the one who gives peace in the midst of turmoil. It's all tied to staying connected to him in the midst of problems. But I found something else. It isn't always so easy to stay connected to him in difficult times. In fact, I found it's hard to stay connected to God in difficult times. It's hard for me, and I just know that I'm an average ordinary person if it's hard for me. It's hard for a lot of time. It's hard, but it's not impossible. And I find that there is a key to making it work. And it's this. And it's something that a lot of times we don't like to hear because we can't blame anybody else or something else. Here's what I found is the key for me, and I know it's the key for any of us who want to stay connected in the hard times. It's making the hard choice to live in an awareness of an interaction with God's presence rather than depending on self or listening to the lies of Satan. Let me say that again. Here's the key. 
It's making the hard choice to live in an awareness of an interaction with God's presence rather than depending on self or listening to the lies of Satan. I honestly believe this. It all comes down to the choices we make. And I'll admit the choices are difficult at times. Do I simply depend on myself, which I know I can trust me? I can work more, I can work harder, I can strategize, I can figure this thing out. Or do I stop and intentionally look for and interact with God? Be still long enough to hear what he has to say and actually at times wait for his intervention in my situation. That's a choice. Which way will I approach the situation? Or do I replay you know, and believe the lies that the enemy is whispering into my ear about the bad situation. So I replay, I hear these lies from him or the situation, I just replay it over and over and over. Things that are tied to past hurts or insecurities or false beliefs. Do I do that? Is that my choice? And that kind of happens without even knowing we make a choice. Or do I choose to confess God's truth about a matter? Believe God's truth based on the fact that God said it, so I confess it. I literally say it out loud to myself. It's a choice. So the key to living in an awareness and an interaction with God in the hard times is tied directly to the choices that each and every one of us make. And I think there are four choices that we need to make to keep us connected in God's presence during the hard times. Now, interestingly, these are the things we should also be doing in the good times, but what I found is these are the things that we tend to, to either just push aside or choose to not do because somehow we like to live in unhappiness, even though we don't think there that we do. But these are choices that oftentimes I see people not making when hard times come. Matter of fact, I see them go from what they were doing that was right to not making the right choice as soon as it gets difficult, and then it makes the difficulty expand. These are choices that we can all make. Sometimes people say this, well, the choices you're making, well, you're a pastor and that's why you can make those choices. No. The choices that I want to talk about are choices that we can all make. They're not tied to your ability. They're not even tied to how long you've known Jesus. They're not tied to your resources. They're not tied to your status. They're not tied to your job. They're really not even tied to, I could say they're tied to your schedule, but you have to make some choices about your schedule. So let's talk about these four things. Write them down. These are four things because Jesus said, you're going to have trouble. And I promise you, if we do these four, and these are four, that's just some theoretical thing. I've looked at my life and tried to say, and looked at God's word in comparison to my life and said, God, what have I done wrong? And he's shown me if I've done these things wrong, if I do these things right, this is how I can live in his presence, even in the hard times. So let's look at these four first one is this. The first choice, now, whenever I say these, I want you to hear them, write them down, but I want you to listen to what I had to say, that you don't dismiss them outright saying this, well, I know that. There's more to them than just the word or two I'm going to talk about. Okay, I'm going to explain them. So the first choice when times get bad is this, run to church. Run to church. I didn't say run to Christians. I said run to to church, which is this. So often the first thing I see people do when times get hard is they run from church. Matter of fact, 
one of the main things I've done in my life in the last 25 years with staff in churches is talk about how has anybody seen so and so? Now we don't ask that question because we're thinking, oh well, boy, we're missing a person to count for attendance on Sunday morning. No. It's I know this. If so and so's not been around for a while, it's the first indication that something's wrong in their spiritual life. Either they're just not showing up or they're replacing church with a bunch of other activities. It shows me there's something wrong in their spiritual life. They're running from something. So, so often the first thing I see people do when times get hard is they run from church. I think they may be afraid, a couple things, to admit that they have a problem. Sometimes we're afraid to admit we have a problem, right? Our pride doesn't want to admit that. We've been serving God maybe for a long time and to admit we have a problem. Somehow we may conclude that means that we're not growing or mature. Well, it doesn't mean that at all. In this world you'll have problems. So sometimes though we're just afraid to admit that we have a problem. Or we're embarrassed about our situation because we say, you know, people may judge me that things haven't turned out the way I thought they were going to turn out in my life, in my career, in my family, with my children. And so I'm embarrassed by the situation. So I don't want to be around people who would know my situation. Or we are in so much pain from a situation that we think letting others know what's going on instead of hurt, helping will actually hurt us more. For whatever the reason, isolating yourself from your church family never helps. Say never. Never. Isolating yourself from your church family never, not one out of 99, never helps. I want you to listen to what the writer of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, says about this. Think of it on a slide. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. It says, let us consider us. This is talking about the church. This is Christian people in the church. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Not forsaking our assembling together. And I have this in parentheses. As is the habit of some. So even... In the writing of the New Testament days, this was the habit of some. Not forsaking our assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now stop for a second before we just talk about the implications of this. This was written 2,000 years ago. Is the day of Christ's return even drawing more near today than it was 2,000 years ago? Of course, right? 2,000 years closer to his return. He could return today. I hope he does. You know, (laughs) lots of amens. So he said, even all the more as you see the day drawing near, you should be considering how to stimulate one another to loving good deeds, not forsaking your own assembling together, because that's where that happens. Don't repeat the pattern of some who make this their pattern, but encourage one another all the more as the day draws near. You know, look at why it says we're together. Why are we together today? Have you thought about this this morning? You got up to go to church. Why did you come? The Bible tells you why you came. Why you're supposed to have come. To encourage one another. To stimulate one another. Stimulate is to help them move ahead or help them become what they should or help them move into what God has. One of the primary reasons God has birthed the church is for it to be a place of encouragement. And I know this for certain about this church family, Portview Church. You are people who care. We are people 
who care, and we do offer encouragement. I see it all the time. This is the place to run to, not to run from. It's a safe place. And there is a dynamic of the Holy Spirit within a healthy church family that is not found anywhere else on the planet. And it is essential for standing strong in difficult times. So the first thing you need to do when you're going through difficulty is you run to church. That makes sense? Now you're ready to mess with me for me to mess with you when I give you number two? Ready? The second choice you make, remember these are all choices, anybody can run to church. In our context, I so you can say, well, but yeah, over in Libya, they can't do that. Well, okay. You don't live in Libya. Praise the Lord. I'm glad. I live where I can run to church. The second choice I make, we can all make these choices, is take time for solitude. Take time for solitude. Now you may be thinking, and I put these in this order on purpose, isn't that the opposite of running to church? Sunday morning, pastor, I just ran away from church to be alone. You need them both. Is it the opposite of running to church? No. Because biblical solitude is not isolation. Listen to me. It's intentional time alone with God. Being alone together with Him. It's not just escapism. It's not running to the lake. I'm not saying you couldn't be in isolation at the lake. What I'm saying is just running to the lake does not mean you're in solitude with God. You understand what I mean? It's an intention. Solitude is intentional time alone with God. Being alone together with Him. As much as you need the strength and the healing that comes from the love of the church, you also need alone time with God. Why? So that He can minister to you. You know that God wants to minister to you? He loves you. I want us to look at a story together. Grab your Bibles and turn back into the Old Testament to 1 Kings chapter 19. Now as you're turning there, I'm going to set the, set the scene. The prophet Elijah has just finished one of the greatest ministry events of all time, what we find here. The king and queen of Israel, named Ahab and Jezebel, had led the nation into total immorality, complete terrible idolatry, had driven them complete, led them completely away from God. They had, so as a result, they had forsaken God and killed almost all the prophets of God in the land. The church was destroyed. But there came a day for a showdown. And the prophet Elijah told the king to gather all the false prophets and to meet him for a, a contest or a showdown on top of Mount Carmel. And so there they met on top of Mount Carmel. 850 prophets. Prophets of Baal and prophets of the Asherah. 850 against one guy. Elijah, the prophet of God. And Elijah set the stage for how they are going to have a little contest that day. Elijah says, this is what I want you to do. We're going to take two oxen. And you can go first. 
And you're going to take this oxen, you're going to build an altar, you're going to cut that oxen off, you're going to put the oxen on the altar, and you're going to say, God, answer by fire. Reveal yourself. Consume the sacrifice. And so they went about cutting up the oxen, putting it on their altar, and they began to do all their normal ritualistic Baal worship stuff, chanting, yelling, screaming, cutting themselves with knives, it said, whipping themselves all into a frenzy, and all along Elijah sat there mocking them. I think it's funny what Elijah does. He goes, oh, maybe your God is on vacation. Maybe he's in the bathroom. Yell louder. That's what he says. The Bible's funny. Maybe he's sleeping. Shout louder. Wake up your God. And they do all this, and of course nothing happens. And Elijah says, my turn. And he takes that. He takes that oxen and he cuts it up and he first of all he rebuilds the altar the way God wanted his altar rebuilt with twelve stones. He digs a trench around the outside of it. And he puts the wood on and he cuts up the oxen and he puts the oxen on and he says, Now get a bunch of water. Let's make sure this isn't a trick. And he says, Dump the water on. So dump some more water on. Dump some more water on until the the altar and the oxen are covered in water and the entire trench around the altar is filled with water. And then Elijah, at the exact time of the evening sacrifice, just calls out to the one true God. And the one true God comes down in a fire. And he says he consumes the oxen, he consumes the altar, which is made of rocks, and he licks up all the water. And the people know God is real. And Elijah says, kill all the false prophets. They take them down to a brook and they kill all 850 false prophets. And here's Elijah, a great man of God. He heard God. God told him what to do. He listened and it was so powerful that God came out of heaven and performed one of the most dramatic miracles of all time in all of human history. And, and Elijah's the guy that God uses to do it. This great man of God. Having just been part of an amazing demonstration of God's presence. He's, he should be flying high. But then Ahab, the king, tells Jezebel. Jezebel was the one who really ruled the, ruled the world, ruled the kingdom. Matter of fact, it's why we use the term Jezebel spirit. When we have really out of control female um, people ru- running their husbands or male leadership. That's where this comes from. Jezebel really ruled, ruled the roost. And Jezebel, here's what happens from Ahab, and Jezebel sends word to Elijah, the prophet who's just come through all this stuff. This is the word. She says, by this time tomorrow, you'll be dead, just like all those prophets are dead. Now you would imagine, I would imagine, if I'm Elijah, I would laugh. Who are you kidding me? God will smoke you. You know? You'd think Elijah would shrug it off, but... He doesn't. Instead, what happens, it says that he, he runs for his life. And it's this flight for his life that I want us to look at today. First Kings 19. Let's read what happens in this situation. We'll read to verse 15. It says, Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, how he had killed the prophets with the sword, and Jezebel sent the messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and even more if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And he was afraid, and he arose 
and he ran for his life. Friends, hard times happen. Even the powerful prophets. And he was afraid and he arose and he ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and he came and he sat down under a juniper tree and requested for himself that he might die. He's saying, God, just kill me. And he said, enough. It is enough now, O Lord. Take my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and he slept under a juniper tree. And behold, there was an angel touching him. And he said to him, Arise, eat. Then he looked and behold, there was at his head a, at his head a bread cake baked on a hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and he drank and he lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and he ate and he drank and he went into the, in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mountain of God, which is further into the wilderness. Then he came there to a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, have torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by, and a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake, and after the earthquake a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire, and after the fire a blowing of a gentle, a sound of a gentle blowing. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And then he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant and tore down your altars and killed your prophet with a sword and I alone am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return to your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you have arrived there, you shall anoint Hazael king over Aram. Aram. And then he goes on to say the rest of the things that he should do, including anointing a new prophet, Elisha, in his place. Now, here's what I want to notice. I want you to notice about this. This whole story. Here's the story of a great man who has been doing exactly what God has instructed him to do. Right? He just won on a, a, you know, a battle against the prophets of Baal and the prophets of the Asherah. He is doing exactly what God told him to do, and he finds himself exhausted and dejected and scared, and he wants to die. He's depressed. He's in the toughest of places, the toughest of times. Good people go through tough times. It doesn't mean you're out of the will of God. Elijah couldn't have been more in the will of God than he was in. But now notice, where was it 
that he was ministered to by God in this tough time and how that he, where how did he find renewed strength and and pers- proper perspective it was in solitude when he got alone with God listen church solitude being alone on purpose with God is essential for staying connected to God in hard times. Here's why I believe it works. It's essential. Because solitude gives you separation from your situation long enough so that you can hear the voice of God. Solitude, in essence, literally, because it is, notice Elijah, he went off into the wilderness. And then he went off further into the wilderness. It was, it was separation from his situation in order to be calm enough and quiet enough to hear the voice of God. Sometimes, moms, you just got to get away from the screaming kids and hear from God. Dad, sometimes mom needs to get away from the screaming kids and hear from God. Notice how Elijah heard God speak. He says it wasn't in the wind and it wasn't in the earthquake and it wasn't in the fire. That it was in the quiet. This is the gentle blowing the still small voice, some of your scriptures say. Solitude, intentionally being alone with God in order to be with Him alone, creates an opportunity for God to minister to you, unlike any other opportunity. Solitude can be a time to vent and cry. Elijah did that. He complained. Matter of fact, I think it's interesting. He let him. Scripture records that he says the exact same thing two times, just in the verses we read. Well, this is what happened, and they've killed everybody, and I'm alone. And God later says to him, "No, you're not alone. I got lots of other guys. You think you're alone, but but you're not." But God didn't yell at him for it. God didn't say, "Oh, knock it off, Elijah, you big stinking sissy." He didn't do that, did he? He ministered to him. He sent an angel. When he was whining and complaining, he sent an angel. He let him sleep, and he gave him food, and then he let him sleep again, and he gave him more food. He took care of him. It was fine. God understood. Sometimes you need to vent and cry. You don't want to live your whole life that way. But sometimes you need to vent and cry, and solitude is a great place to do it. Elijah did. But mostly solitude, it's a time to be quiet and listen. And receive from God. You notice that venting and the crying didn't do him a whole lot of good? I'm not saying he shouldn't have done it. He probably had to do it. But what did him good was being quiet and still and listening. Listening for the still fall voice. You notice what he didn't do also? He didn't run off to 50 different other prophets and say, Oh, prophet, what do you think I should do in my life? The easy way is always run off to somebody else and ask them what they think you should do. Listen. Solitude is running away with God. To be with God. Go ahead and whine and complain. I do. But then shut up and listen and say, God, speak to me. And receive from God because He wants to give to you. So, choice number two, it's a choice we can all make. In order to remain aware of God's presence in the hard times, is solitude. Choice number three. Some of you are going to go, well, these are just, yeah. No, I'm telling you, these are things I see people not do and I tend to not do when I'm having problems. Choice number three, make the choice to engage in personal worship and praise. Personal, explain what I mean. 
You know, I said already that the first choice is to run to church. And part of the reason for that is that we have corporate worship. We had great corporate worship today. We are blessed. we got awesome people with great gifts from God who can lead the ungifted like me into worship. I was thinking this morning when I was worshiping, I was talking to Brett and Miranda about how I try to lead the charge. And I remember in college, I didn't tell them I lead in college that because of what I'm expressive in my worship, um, a church, a very large church I was part of, asked me, to be on the choir. And I said, but I can't sing. They said, we don't care. Mouth the words and just worship. Because you get everybody else to worship. There's something great about corporate worship. I love it. It's something great. That is essential to, to healing and empowering. But there is more than this. Staying connected in the hard times requires spiritual warfare. And I believe personal worship is warfare. I really believe that. I'm going to explain it. I think that's how it works. Satan and his enemies, demons, want to defeat us. We are children of God. He hates God, so he hates you. He hates me. And what he really wants, he can't kill us. What he really wants is he wants us to get disconnected from God. Because if I'm disconnected from God, I don't live in the joy and the pleasure of God. And therefore, no one else in the world is going to want to be like me. So his work is done. Nothing Satan loves worse than a bunch of crabby, sour Christians. The best advertising to not come to the church kingdom of God of anything. So all he wants to do for children of God is get you disconnected from God. You know? He can whisper lies to you. He can discourage you and derail you. You've all experienced it. Something happens. Bad happens. And there is this continual barrage of thoughts that keep coming to your mind about it. Negative thoughts. Thoughts of how to get even. Thoughts of how bad you have it compared to everybody else. Where do you think those thoughts come from? Where do they originate? They don't originate from God. God's not speaking. God's never thought a negative thing about you in your life. And God's never spoken a negative word to you. They originate from Satan. And I found the best way to overcome those thoughts is by worship. And I discovered this one day when reading Isaiah. Isaiah 61.3. Isaiah is talking about, interestingly, the favor of the Lord. We want to all live in the favor of the Lord, right? He's talking about the favor of the Lord. And he says that God will do this for us. He'll give us a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Well, the enemy, this is what I know, is the spirit of despair. So as I put on a garment of praise, and I mean by that, a lifestyle of praise, it's what you see when you see me. This is my garment, it's what you see. You put on a garment of praise, a lifestyle of praise, it replaces or pushes away the spirit of despair. And all I can tell you about this is, it works. When I'm in despair, when I'm down, when I tend towards depression... If I make the choice to worship and praise, I literally feel the despair leave me. But I need to make the choice. And sometimes that one simple choice, my brain says, do it. But making that simple choice is not so easy because I just don't feel like it when I'm down. When I'm down, I don't feel like praising and worshiping. 
I'm down and listen. Despair feeds despair. It's a snowball. But if I make the choice, which I can make, no one has tied me down, shoved a rag in my mouth, and shoved me in a closet. Even then, I could still choose to worship and praise as long as my brain works. But if I make the choice, honestly, it happens so quickly. I feel that, that, that spirit of despair just flee as I put on a garment of praise. And that's how I determined it was actually spiritual. I could feel, I identified after years, it's a spirit that's whispering in my ears all the negatives. It's causing me to think about the, the negatives and rehearse all the bad things. God's not doing it, the devil is. And I begin to praise that, that, that spirit of despair literally has to flee from my presence. It's the, it's the spirit's influence in my life causing that influence to have to go. And, and you can literally feel it happen. So choice number three is you choose to, for, to have personal worship. Corporate worship, great, but personal worship. And one final choice. Again, you're going to say, oh yeah, but no, we don't. Confess Scripture. I'm saying confess is what you do out loud. You say it out loud. You don't just say it when anybody else is around. I think you're weird. Confess out loud Scripture. Now, I think you could um, categorize this with worship as spiritual warfare. I really think it is. Because you're replacing God's truth with the lies that we believe. And I think that's, that's part of warfare. And what I simply mean here is identify scriptures, scriptural truth, that speak to your problem. And by continually confessing it and replacing it for the lie, you feel transformation occur. Generally, scriptures that speak to truth about the big picture of your life. And this is what I mean by this. I think scripture, because a lot of times people confess scripture, but I'm saying I think there's a big picture to life. And I think that big picture has basically two components. And so you want to confess scripture that basically I think speak to the two components. And I'm going to give you some scripture ideas in a minute. But the two components to your life. And if you get these two components straight, everything else works itself out. And these are the two primary areas I want to confess scripture over. Number one, who I am in God's eyes. Who you are in Christ. Verses about who you are in Christ. What's God say about you? Not what's the devil. Not what's your spouse. Not what's your boss. Not what's your kid. What's God say about you? Because what God says about you is what's true. God's not a liar, is he? So what God thinks about you is true. So we confess that. So first of all, who we are in God's eyes. The second area of scripture I want to confess in my life to keep me, to, to pull me out of the doldrums or keep me from the doldrums is confess scripture that talks about the reality of my situation in light of God's governance. Meaning, the reality of my situation in the reality of God being in control of everything and me being part of his kingdom. These are the two big ones that I think cover up every area of potential trouble in our lives. And let me explain. So the first part I said, we need to confess scripture that talks about who we are in Christ. This is what I know. When I know who I am in Christ, all the problems tied to insecurity, 
and pride and hurt are put into perspective. Now, if you look at your problems in life, a bunch of them come from that area right there to your identity. So you become insecure with a false identity. You're insecure. You operate out of pride, which is believing that you're responsible for things that you have and are instead of understanding it ultimately comes from God. It's really, it's really uh, um, trusting ourselves over God. And, and hurt because we don't put it in the, perspective, in the picture of who we are in Christ. So I confess scriptures that remind me of who I am in Christ. So I confess a couple of main ones. I'm going to give you two of them that I confess. I confess Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. And it says this. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved me, us, even when we were dead in transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. I confess, because the verse tells me I'm loved. I'm with Christ. I'm alive spiritually. That's the truth of who I am. That's the truth. The devil can say anything he wants. But this is what I know. I'm alive together with Christ. We're unified. I'm with him. It's his strength that takes care of everything. I don't have to. Or I confess this. Matter of fact, this one's written on a little, little note tacked next to my desk. Proverbs 15.9. God loves one who pursues righteousness. And I go, I'm trying to pursue righteousness. God says, I love you for that. Verses that tell me who I am in Christ. And there's thousands of them. But these are ones that, that I tend to confess in these situations. Tell me I'm loved. Tell me I'm with Christ. Tell me I'm alive spiritually. So that's the first part. Who, how does verses that talk about who I am, in, who does God think I am? Verses that say I'm his child, that he loves me, that he's going to protect me. Confess those. It deals with who I am in Christ. That takes care of all the situations of insecurity and pride and hurt. But then the next section down, the next category, is I want to confess verses that had to do with the reality of my situation in light of God's governance or God's kingdom, his control. When I really get this, that God is in control, then I can trust him. I can trust him with things of provision, I can trust him with things of where I feel lack. I can trust him with my health because I know he's in control. We can walk through all of these things with confidence when we put ourselves in the big picture within God's governance. So I confess scriptures that tell me about that. So my favorite, Colossians 3.3. I confess this one. and I, I put my name in there. You know, for Mark, you died to your life. And, you, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. You hear me talk about it all the time. I talk about it all the time. I'm always going like this. You know, kind of, I'm not that creative. This is God. This is me. This is how I live. That all comes from Colossians 3.3. 3. That's how I live. I live with this idea that God, I'm, I'm hidden. I'm hidden with Christ in God. And I'm living in the safety of God all the time. In His, perfect, in his provision, His protection, in His wisdom. I'm hidden with Christ in God. I put myself in the big picture of God's governance. He's in control. I'm hidden with Him. He's running the universe. I don't have to. Some of you need to understand that. He is running this universe. You don't have to. Some of you can have a sigh of relief right there. So I confess that or I confess this. This was also written on my wall. 
Psalm 118.6 The Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? You confess that when you're having problems and you're trying to see your little picture world in light of the big picture world, which is true. And you understand this. In light of God's governance, the Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? You know what? Tells me God's on my side. Or maybe one more, Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. You know, I can live my life from the perspective of God and know that He's given me, He's blessed me with every blessing I need to live the life He's asked me to lead. Truth that puts my life in the context of God's kingdom, God's governance. He's in control and I can trust Him even in the hard times. So you confess that. It's not complicated. Any one of us can choose to do that. You can take even these verses I told you, take one from the first category, one from the second category, and begin to just write them on a card and confess them every day. Out loud in your bathroom, simply speak them out loud. Say, this is what I choose to believe because God says it's true. I found it's key to living in a connected relationship in the midst of the hard times. This is what I found, church, as we wrap this thing up. Hard times always come. But the child of God can stay connected with God during those hard times and experience joy and pleasure that comes from his presence. And there's four choices to help us maintain that relationship. Run to church, take time for solitude, engage in personal worship, and confess scripture. If we'll do those, I honestly believe, We'll be able to experience what Psalm 1611 says, in your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's what God has for us. Amen? Amen. Stand with me this morning. Close in prayer. Heavenly Father, When I was asking you what to do for today and asking you how to close this service up, I really felt compelled to ask you to pray to you for us something in particular. And Lord, this is my prayer for our church family this morning. Father, help us to be doers of your word today. Do not, only, do not let us only hear what is said to us that lines up with your word, but help us hear it and own it and do it. Help us to be able to make the hard choices that either connect us or keep us connected to the reality of your presence even in hard times. God, I pray that you will encourage those who are hurting today by your presence. You will give them hope that they see there's things that they can do that don't cost any money, that are simply volitions of their will, 
And that, God, you will also use as encouragers all of us who at this time are not going through seasons of trouble. That this church would arise and be what you've intended it to be. That one of the great things we would do is we'd serve as a place of encouragement for one another. That we really would encourage one another towards love and good deeds. All for your glory, God. And so, Lord, my prayer for our church family today is that you would help us to be doers of the Word. Of this Word. Because I really believe this Word is simply out of your Word. And it's from you. Not every way I've presented it. Lord, whatever's human, whatever's Mark in this thing, just let it be forgotten. Let it be ignored. But what's from your heart today about people standing strong in hard times? Let us embrace that. But go beyond simply embracing it. To actually acting on it. So that we can experience the result. Lord, for all of us who tend to have been educated way beyond our obedience, help us to apply what you're showing us so we're not like roller coasters up and down and up and down that we have strength and stability in that ongoing relationship so let your church arise Father, and be all that you intend for us God I know I just believe with all my heart that's your plan for your church and so we, so I simply say, so be it, God. Please fulfill your purposes in this place. And we trust you for that, Jesus. Now as we close today, maybe you want to spend some time in prayer with God alone. You can be alone with God in the midst of a crowd. I encourage you to do that. Maybe you need to be prayed for. You desire to be prayed for this morning. Myself, Pastor Chris, Pastor Mitch will be here. We'll gladly pray for you. That's what the church is for. Encouraging prayer. We're here for you. When you feel dismissed by the Holy Spirit, please quietly make your way out of the sanctuary. Spend some time encouraging one another, loving one another, celebrating the goodness of God together. And have a wonderful day in Jesus. God bless you, church.